Amen. Thank you so much. Beautiful singing this morning. Well, today is Palm Sunday, and uh, you see by the screen there that I'm preaching on that subject this morning. So you can turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 19. Now, the, uh, <coughs> excuse me, the events of Palm Sunday are recorded in all four Gospels. We're going to be looking at Luke's Gospel, and I'll pull in a few thoughts from the other three Gospels uh, as well uh, as we look at this. Uh, Palm Sunday, of course, takes place a week before the resurrection, the Sunday before the resurrection. And it's called Palm Sunday because people took palm branches and waved them in praise unto the Lord and laid them down in front of the uh, donkey that Jesus was riding into Jerusalem. And uh, so that's the reason for the name. Now with that said, let's read a, a few verses here and then keep your Bibles open. We'll come back to these verses. Look at verse 35 of Luke 19. And they brought him, that is the uh, donkey, to Jesus. And they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus upon it. And as they went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with with a loud voice. Wow, think about that. They're praising God. They're doing it openly and outwardly and with a loud voice they're rejoicing for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed uh, be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. <clears throat> and he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Isn't that amazing? What a wonderful scene that must have been. Excuse me. Pray with me. Father, thank you for our time together now. Make it profitable to each of us as we look back on this historic occasion, this glorious occasion. May you open our eyes and may we see in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. As most of you know, Karen and I took our Alabama grandchildren back uh, to Alabama, and uh, we had four of them and, their, and one grand dog uh, for uh, a week and a half, and it was wonderful. We had a great time. <clears throat> I love driving through the mountains and uh, to see the majesty of what God has created. You know, God speaks through his creation. Uh, the theologians call that uh, natural revelation. And uh, he speaks in a, in a great way. Sometimes God speaks in a big way. Uh, through mountains and the starry sky and, and the beauty of his creation. As the psalmist said, the heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, there's also special revelation, as the theologians would call it, and that is the Bible given unto us, special revelation. The greatest revelation of God was in the person of Christ, who was God in the flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. 
And uh, so God speaks in big ways. But God also speaks in small ways. He reveals himself and speaks through a kind word, a loving word, an encouraging word. God speaks through those who help, maybe financially or maybe with a meal or maybe uh, in some other uh, way, groceries and so forth. Or maybe he speaks to us in smaller ways through a track or a book or someone's life or a testimony that you see in someone else. Or maybe just the sense of God's presence in our own souls when we're still before him. God says, be still and know that I am God. God speaks in big ways. God speaks in small ways. God was speaking to the nation of Israel on this day when he rode in to Jerusalem on a donkey. Zechariah 9, 9, 500 years before Jesus was ever born, God said through the prophet Zechariah to Jerusalem, Behold, your king cometh unto you, meek and humble, riding on a donkey. This was a prophecy concerning the Messiah, the coming Savior. And many of the people of Israel knew that prophecy. Certainly the religious leaders knew that prophecy. And here that prophecy is being fulfilled right in front of their eyes. God is speaking to them. God is revealing himself to them in this great passage. Not only that, he came on a very special day. We might say he came on Palm Sunday, but... That's the reason it is Palm Sunday, because that's the day he came. <laughs> but prior to that, this day had always been the Lamb Selection Day for the Passover. This was the day when the people of Israel chose a lamb that was without spot, unblemished, to be their Passover lamb. This is the day that Jesus comes into Jerusalem as though God the Father is saying, here's my lamb, choose him. Here's the real lamb of God. Three years earlier, John the Baptist had declared, behold the lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And we sang about that just a few moments ago. Paul would write that he is our Passover lamb. So this was a special day when God was revealing himself to the people of Israel. Now we're going to come back and look at some details, but before we do, I want to see a little clip that uh, I put together back in 08, I think. It's from a movie that's entitled uh, the, the Gospel of John. And it was, it was written, or the movie was produced in, in uh, 2003, and the whole movie is, is nothing but the reading of the book of John, and it is uh, acted out as, the, as you have the reading of the book of John. Now, the reading is in a, um, 
uh, in a paraphrased version, uh, so it's easy to read, easy to understand. And so this will give us a little bit of a visual. It's only a minute and a half, but it'll give us a little bit of a visual of, uh, of that day. So let's, uh, let's view this video. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the Passover festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, shouting, Praise God! God bless him who comes in the name of the Lord. God bless the King of Israel. Jesus found a donkey and rode on it, just as the scripture says, Do not be afraid, city of Zion. Here comes your King. Riding on a young donkey. His disciples did not understand this at the time, but when Jesus had been raised to glory, they remembered that the scripture said this about him, and that they had done this for him. People who had been with Jesus when he called Lazarus out of the grave and raised him from death had reported what had happened. That was why the crowd met him, because they heard he had performed this miracle. The Pharisees then said to one another, You see, we are not succeeding at all. Look, the whole world is following him. Now, this uh, Palm Sunday starts what is called Passion Week. The Bible has a lot to say about this one week. Look at your screen for a moment. Let me uh, uh, show you some facts about this uh, week, Passion Week, sometimes called Holy Week, sometimes called the Last Week. And uh, the four Gospels have 89 chapters, and they cover 33 years of the life of Christ. So let that soak in. The four Gospels added together, 89 chapters, covered 33 years. 29 of these 89 chapters cover one week in the life of Christ. One-third of the Gospels take up that one week. Now think about that. God puts big emphasis on this one week, this passion week, this holy week. A lot of things that... You and I are very familiar with Jesus' teaching and so forth. He did during this uh, week. Here's the way the week breaks down. Uh, if, you, if you date it in 33 A.D., which is the way Sir Isaac Newton uh, dated it, uh, it, scholars today may go from anywhere from 29 to 36 A.D. Uh, and uh, the... Uh, the nucleus of those conservative scholars from 30 to 33. So about a three-year period in there that uh, men uh, uh, have set the time. Now, we don't know the exact time. I just put it up here because I thought it was interesting, and I thought it reminds me and reminds you that this is not just a story. This happened on a certain day, in a certain year, on a certain date. So the way Isaac Newton and many scholars today feel the date was puts Palm Sunday on the 29th of March. 
when Jesus entered in to Jerusalem on a Sunday. Then on a Monday, he cleanses the temple. On a Tuesday, he has public preaching. On this Tuesday, by the way, is when he preaches the great Olivet Discourse on prophecy, where he says, uh, uh, he talks about the, the tribulation period and so forth, and he says, uh, uh, Be ye therefore ready, for in such an hour as you know, know not the Son of Man cometh. Uh, talked about his second coming. That takes place on this Tuesday. Also parables. And then Wednesday is a day of quiet in Bethany with his closest disciples and friends. And then Thursday is the Passover. And Thursday, by the way, is when he preaches that upper room discourse when he talks about the vine and the branches and a new relationship with the Father and a new relationship with the Holy Spirit when the, when the day of Pentecost comes. And all of that was on Tuesday, and then the Passover, and then the arrest. And then the trial and the crucifixion on Friday. Saturday, body in the grave. And then Sunday, the fifth, the glorious resurrection. There's the Passion Week, 29 chapters out of 89 devoted to this one week. Now, with that emphasis, look back at your text, and let's think about this in a little more detail. And they brought a him, that is the, the colt, the, uh, the uh, uh, donkey, uh, unto Jesus. Now, if you compare all the Gospels, <clears throat> we realize this is, a, this is a colt of a donkey. And the, and the mother of the donkey was there apparently as well somewhere in the vicinity where they brought this colt to Jesus. It was a, it was a donkey that had never been ridden before. And so this, it, this, in a sense, is somewhat of a supernatural feat that Jesus could set on a donkey that had never been tamed or ridden and, uh, and ride it. And so the donkey himself surrendered to the lordship of Christ here. And then it says, And they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set him, Jesus, thereon. Now, here it talks about clothing. In a moment, it's going to talk about they laid their clothing in the way. When you compare all the Gospels, let me give you some information from the other Gospels. Matthew chapter 21 talks about branches and garments and uses the term a great multitude. So we have a big crowd, not a small one, and that they cut branches from the trees so that they could wave them in praise. Mark 11 talks about cut branches and garments laying in the way. Chapter 12 of John talks about much people, palm branches, and doesn't mention the garments. Luke, where we are, mentions the garments, but doesn't mention the palm branches. When you put all of those four Gospels together, you get an idea of what was taking place. Here it talks about uh, the garments. To lay a garment... On the donkey was like a saddle, but to lay their garments in the way along the path where the donkey would walk was a, was a picture of the surrender of their lives. It's like laying yourself down and, uh, uh, before the Lord. They laid their clothing down and surrender to the Lord. And then they waved the palms and laid them down in praise. And then look at verse 35 and uh, 36. And as he went... They spread the clothes in the way, laying them on the ground. And when he was come 
nigh even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. And then we have this uh, uh, explanation for, they, for the mighty works that they had seen. They had seen his miracles. Some of the people right there holding those palm branches and moving them around or laying them in the path, they had seen him heal people. They had seen crippled legs made straight right in front of their eyes and blind people whom they had known for all their lives had been blind and now in a, in a second of time they could see perfectly. They had seen these things. On three different occasions, Jesus had raised Someone from the dead. Can you imagine? These people, that was right there in their neighborhood, right there around them. And uh, John's gospel emphasizes here not only all the miracles, but it emphasizes the miracle of the raising of Lazarus, which had taken place just prior to this scene. And so they were glorifying him for all the mighty things which he had done and they had seen and this is what they were saying blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord peace in heaven and glory in the highest when Jesus was born remember the angel saying peace on earth and now the multitude is is singing peace in heaven well the peace that comes to earth is a peace that comes from heaven and, and uh, only the Lord Jesus can give that peace he is the prince of peace is he not he is the Lord of peace, that is the controller of peace, the giver of peace, the bestower of peace upon his people. And so they're singing and glory in the highest. Now all of this was describing what it meant to, to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. This is the way they were rejoicing. This is the way they were praising God with a loud voice. Now when you look at the other three gospels, all three of them tell us that along with what's said here, they were also using the word Hosanna. We sang that word ourselves uh, in one of our songs a few moments ago. The word Hosanna, if you look it up in a dictionary, it means a proclamation of praise. It is, uh, it is a word for praising God. In the, in the Hebrew, in the original, uh, the idea of the word meant uh, it's the Lord who saves. Or it could be in a prayer. Lord, save us. Uh, the Lord is the one who saves. And they were praising the Lord with this uh, word, Hosanna, and referring to him as the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. Now, we don't know how much these people understood about what they were doing. I think it would be obvious in a very large crowd that many of them knew that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, some people may have just got caught up in the enthusiasm. But him coming on this donkey was a declaration that he was the Messiah. The fact is, this is the first public declaration of Jesus as the Messiah. Now he had made private statements of course and, and speaking of his deity and who he was 
But he had kept it quiet, and he had stayed away from this, this kind of uh, public announcement. But this was his public announcement. And uh, many people, no doubt, understood it. They had, some of the people there probably had been forgiven themselves from their sin. There may have been some people who had been prostitutes, had lived immoral lives. And they were there in this crowd praising the Lord. They knew He was the Savior. He was the forgiveness of uh, the one who forgives sin. There was probably some in that crowd who was looking only for a Messiah to deliver them from the bondage of Rome. And their, their thoughts were not about forgiveness or peace in their heart. Are Jesus as God and Savior. Their thoughts was on, we hope this person claiming to be the Messiah, we hope he's going to deliver us from the heel of Rome. And they were looking at it more in a political way. And so there was a multitude there. They had seen miracles. They had heard about miracles. Some of them probably had experienced miracles. You remember uh, uh, Bartimaeus lived in this general area. He had been blind and was given his sight. I imagine if, if uh, he knew this was going on, old blind Bartimaeus, who's no longer blind, he had probably uh, palm, a whole group of palm leaves in both hands, waving those palms and giving God praise. And so it was a time of great rejoicing. God was revealing himself. And then notice, and some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. <laughs> There's always somebody that wants, to, that wants to quiet down the excitement over the Lord, isn't there? <laughs> There's always somebody who uh, wants to criticize. And of course, the Pharisees believed in God. They believed in worship. They just didn't believe in worshiping like this. And uh, so they criticized. They were already, of course, the Pharisees of a mindset. They were looking for some reason to put Jesus to death. And uh, so they said, Lord, rebuke thy disciples. Now, because they were loud, yes. But because what they were saying, this Hosanna and blessed is the king that cometh <clears throat> in the name of the Lord, that comes from the Psalm 118. And it is a messianic psalm. In other words, they understood that to be about the Messiah. So they understood these people were accepting, at least in this outward way, they were accepting Jesus as the Messiah. And so they said, your disciples are beside themselves. Rebuke your disciples. And Jesus said in verse 40, and he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. <laughs> Can you imagine that? This was such a moment of praise that if people wouldn't do it, the stones would do it. Because he's the creator of the stones as well, of all creation. There is a, there is a gospel song that uh, the grammar is not so good, but the, uh, but the message is pretty good. The title is, 
ain't gonna let no rock. And the chorus goes like this, ain't gonna let no rock uh, outpraise me, ain't gonna let it sing in my place. You know, yeah, amen. We should be the ones. God created us as the ones to praise Him and to adore Him and to worship Him. And so we have the critics, the worshipers. And then, and then notice in verse 41. We continue on now. And uh, when He was come near, He beheld the city and wept over it. Now in the context we know he was weeping because of their lost condition. John chapter 11, Jesus weeps. Two places we're told Jesus weeps, here in John 11. In John 11, he wept along with fellow believers over the sorrow of losing a loved one, the sorrow of what sin has done to mankind in death. He wept. Here he weeps because... These people have rejected him as Savior and Messiah. In John 11, he weeps silently, the scripture. The, the, the particular word means to weep silently. Here, this, this word means to weep aloud. So if you'd have been standing close enough, you could have heard him weeping. You could have seen the tears that he shed for Jerusalem and the lost people of Israel. We see his great compassion. And then it says, he wept over it saying this, if thou hadst known, if you had, if you had known, God himself has walked up and down your streets and you didn't know it. God himself preached in the temple courtyard and you wouldn't hear it. If you had known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. Oh, the peace they could have had. The peace of the forgiveness of sin. The peace of Christ in our heart as our Lord and Master. But they had forfeited those things. And having rejected what light was there, now the things were hidden from them. Verse 43, Jesus still speaking. For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee and they shall not leave to thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Now it is obvious that Jesus is speaking about a particular time in history that takes place 40 years later, or 37 years later, if you figure um, this is 33 A.D. 
when Titus, the Roman general, who was the son of the emperor, led the army of Rome to Jerusalem. And they besieged the city and wouldn't let anybody in. No one could come in. No one could go out. They surrounded the city and trenched it, just like Jesus said there in verse 43. And uh, no one could come in and out for 143 days. And then the city fell. 600,000 Jews died. Women, children, and men. They tore the whole city down. <clears throat> Every stone. Except for three towers. They left three towers to be a testimony of what a great city it used to be and that Rome could destroy such a great city. It happened 40 years later, exactly like Jesus said. You know, the other prophecies that Jesus told us are going to come true again aren't just as much, aren't they? Just as well. The prophecy of His coming, the tribulation period, and his glorious return. And then notice this last phrase. Thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. God reveals himself sometimes in big ways. Sometimes in small ways. And we miss that visitation. The, the idea of visitation means a revealing of himself. He visited them. God visited them and they rejected him. But God visits all of us as well. Let's not miss the time of our visitation. Now I want to conclude with three thoughts. If you look back at your screen for a moment. On when God reveals himself. We see three groups of people in this, <coughs> excuse me, in this uh, passage. We see first of all the critical there's going to always be critical people, no matter what you do or how you do it. There's going to be critical people. There's, the, of course, the atheists and the agnostics. They think all Christians are, are uh, you know, have a loose screw and uh, that all Christians, you know, or need, quote, religion for a, uh, for a uh, crutch to lean on. There's always going to be criticism from the loudmouth atheist, agnostics, skeptics. But sometimes criticism comes from within our own ranks. One church criticizes that church, that church criticizes this church, and, and so and so it, it goes. Or even within the, the church, there's criticism of one another and so forth. It should not be that way. The, the Pharisees, as I said earlier, they believed in worship. They just didn't believe in worship like that. It was probably too loud, too emotional. I mean, these people acted like they really meant it, you know? And so they criticized them. Music gets a lot of criticism in our day. People say, and it's easy to become critical. Everybody has their preference of the kind of music they like best. People say things like, it's too loud, or it's not loud enough. It's too long, or it's too short. Or, we sing too many songs. We don't sing enough songs. Uh, we stand up too much. We sit down too long. The songs are too old. No, the songs are too new. And so it, it goes. 
We all have preferences. Let's be careful not to become like the Pharisees. Let's be like this second group. This second group, if you look back at your screen, were the worshipful. Ah, they were, they were showing emotion and joy. Now again, some of them... Some of them didn't understand what was going on as well as others. But there was a core group there that understood that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior. And they had been touched by him themselves. And they were beside themselves with joy and celebration. Every Sunday morning ought to be a celebration for God's people. Celebrating the fact that we're redeemed. Our name is written in heaven. One day we're going to be there. And Christ is our Savior and Lord right now. Helping us and walking with us through life. So every Sunday ought to be a celebration. I love it when people raise their hands in, in worship and praise. It's a biblical thing to do. Now you don't have to do it. If you don't, if you don't feel comfortable doing that. Then certainly you don't have to do that. But I love to see people raise their hands and maybe sway their hands. It reminds me of these Palm branches. Maybe they were swaying those palm branches, you know, waving those palm branches. I love to see people raise their hands. This morning, I counted five or six, I think, in the congregation. I don't know. I'm, I'm a counter. I count things. We probably, on a Sunday morning, we usually have anywhere from nine to 14 people in each service that are uh, some, somewhere in the service raise their hands and praise the Lord. It's a beautiful thing to do. You've heard me say this before, that many years ago, when I was a very young preacher, I heard Jerry Falwell say that he never raised his hands in public because, he said, if he raised his hands when one group was singing and not when another group was singing, people would see that as him uh, uh, condoning the one group and criticizing the other group. So he had decided he just wouldn't raise his hands in public. And so as a young preacher, I thought, well, that's a good idea. I should, maybe I should do that too. So I decided I wouldn't raise my hands in public. And uh, it was a good idea because uh, one time someone in the church got mad at me because they said, he said, I didn't cry when he sang, and I cried when other people sang. So if he was looking that closely, maybe it's a good idea I don't raise my hands, but... A lot of times when people are singing and I'm sitting over there, I say to the Lord, Lord, I'm raising my hands in my heart. <laughs> uh, I love it when people raise their hands. Thank you. That's wonderful, man. And, and praise Him and adore Him. Do it with some emotion. Do it like you mean it. Enjoy it. That's the way these people were doing. And so much so, they did it with a loud voice and with great rejoicing. Because of their king, Jesus is our king. And then one last thought. Oh, yeah, no, nothing on the PowerPoint. That's okay. i tell you what it is. You've got the critical, you've got the worshipful, and then you've got the typical, just the average, normal person in that day. What was their response? They just didn't have one. They didn't care much for all the emotionalism. They didn't hate Jesus like the Pharisees. They just missed their visitation. They missed their peace because they missed the Prince of Peace. They missed their visitation. John said, 
All things were made by him. All things. He, he went on to say, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came into his own, and his own received him not. But thank God for that next verse. But as many as did receive him, to them gave he the power <laughs> to become the children of God. If you've been redeemed, let's become men and women of praise. Let's put some emotion into it. Let's, instead of, you know, mouthing the words while we're thinking about lunch, let's think about those words. And let's sing with some gusto. Let's sing with some enthusiasm. Let's, let's sing out loud and sing praises unto the King who cometh in the name of the Lord.